Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Today, history is made. All right, just consider that for two seconds. Today, history is made. Now, that statement is actually true every day. Today, history is made. Tomorrow, today, will be history. So, what is of particular note today? Well, one of the history-making things that is happening today here in the United States of America is that the first woman in the history of this nation lies in state today. It's also the first time that a Jewish American lies in state. So what does it mean to lie in state? Well, lying in state is the tradition in which the body of a deceased, let's say, official Um, is placed in a state building, so lying in state. So you have been to, uh, in all likelihood, uh, viewings or visitations, like right on the day before maybe, or even the hours before a funeral and or a memorial service or a service of celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its application to a particular individual. Uh, And so you have witnessed a body, the body of a deceased person, you know, uh, ordinarily in a casket, sometimes on a table. Um, But they're not lying in state unless the building in which you are uh, viewing them is a state building. So that's the definition of lying in state. Could be inside or outside of a coffin. It allows uh, for a time during which the public pays their respects. Traditionally, it takes place in whatever is regarded as the principal government building of a nation. And so uh, there's a difference between lying in repose and lying in state. Um, And so uh, she has been, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that is, her body has been lying in repose for a number of days. And now there is the more formal honor of lying in state. Why bring this up? Uh, Because she's a significant woman in our nation's history, uh, only the second woman to ever serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. And because ultimately it all goes back in the box, all of it. It, it all goes back in the box. She's going to be buried uh, next week in Arlington National Cemetery next to her husband, Martin, who predeceased her by a decade. So she's been a widow for the last decade. She's been lying in repose for the last several days. She now lies in state. And in the next week, she's going to be buried ashes to ashes, dust to dust. 
She lived a very significant and impactful life. But ultimately, it all goes back in the box. And the temporal impact of her life certainly has uh, significant consequences that extend beyond her mortal, mortal life. But the questions that we ought be asking about life and death are not only about the impact of her life, but where she now spends eternity. And I'll just leave a pause there. Jesus Christ says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He says, nobody comes to the Father but by me. And um, today's the day to get your business done with God on things eternal. Yes, it absolutely has an impact moment by moment, day by day on things temporal. But the things here, the temporal things, friends, they're going back in the box. Um, Things done for God, things done in the name of Christ uh, is ultimately what lasts. All right, Matthew Hawkins is waiting right now. He is first up to bat today. He and I are going to talk about the now vacated seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. We're going to talk about one of the lead presumptive nominees, candidate for that position. Her name is Amy Coney Barrett. We're going to talk about uh, the way in which the press is talking about her and talking about her faith. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Matthew Hawkins. You can follow him on Twitter at MTHawk. You can also uh, find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. He is the host, co-host of a Crossing Faiths podcast that I recommend. Uh, Matt, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Good to be back. Good to be back. What a big week. All right. And it's a big week. It's a big week. Um, They're all big weeks, right? I just, yeah. They're all big weeks now. Can we have some small weeks, please? Yes. uh, I'm, uh, I'd like some small weeks. It, you know, it's even hard to like plan a vacation because, right? you know, it's going to be a big week and I feel responsible to be on the air in a big week and now they're all big weeks. And so then you've just, yeah, they're all big weeks. Know, at, some, at some point I just have to go on vacation. Okay. It's all turned um, up to 11. <laughs> yes. Judge Amy Coney Barrett, a person mm-hmm. of faith, significant yes. um, woman in terms of her legal career and jurisprudence, being scrutinized by the press because of her faith in ways that, you know, maybe I'll just say are not uh, not applied equally to other people of faith. So talk about what you're observing in terms of the yeah. um, press coverage or analyzation uh, of this woman. Sure. So, um this number one won't come as as a particular surprise to a lot of people. Um, but in the, in the, in the hours following Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, uh, naturally, um, uh, the American rhetoric shifted quickly, 
uh, to arguments about her replacement. And obviously, we talk about all of this in a context where America, um, and the, at least <laughs> the part of America that pays attention to politics, is uh, extremely polarized, and, uh, and all of these things are extremely contentious. And to have a debate about the replacement of a Supreme Court justice within uh, within a month or so of a uh, presidential election is a big deal. It makes everything worse, or makes everything more intense than it already already was. And uh, it, it's we need some grace with each other to work through this stuff. And a lot of people of good good faith, I think, can disagree on what ought to be done with the with the placement of the uh, of a, and a vote on uh, Supreme Court justice. Um, I have my own thoughts um, naturally, um, but what I was concerned about this week is the coverage of Amy Coney Barrett and her religion. And now, on the one hand, um, we have. Um, you know, people are clearly allowed to write uh, op-eds and, and uh, this is a political decision. So uh, people can oppose or support and uh, people have the freedom to do that. What I was disappointed in seeing is in what you would call straight news reporting stories. So not op-eds, um, but we're, we're not opinion pieces, but the reporting on her religion. And you have a situation where uh, you know, a conservative Catholic, uh, and even uh, a Catholic who um, participates in you know a small uh, kind of a small sect of Catholicism that's more charismatic and uh, really intentional at the community level, uh, or kind of at the small community level, um, is painted as weird. And even some of the better religion services, religion news services and outlets uh, fall into this trap. And so what we saw the day after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, I have a headline titled, How Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Judaism Shaped Her Judicial Approach. And the tweet that goes along with it was, uh, et cetera, et cetera, rarely attended services, but she was passionate about Judaism's concern for justice and was shaped in the crucible of its minority status. Uh, I think it was a a perfectly fine report on uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, Judaism. Uh, but you can hear that it's spoken of positively. And then the very next day, the same news outlet, title, Amy Coney Barrett, quote, controversial Catholic, reemerges as potential Supreme Court nominee. And it has a quote that's from her that says, quote, it's never appropriate for a judge to impose that judge's personal convictions, whether they arise from faith or anywhere else on the law, said Barrett in 2017. The tweet goes on, nonetheless, her faith will be a point of tension if she is Trump's SCOTUS nominee. And so what I see there is uh, a pretty clear dichotomy between how one person's religion in the public space is treated and how another person's. Uh, religion in a public space is treated. And the dividing line is not Jewish Catholic. It's not Jewish secular. It's not Christian secular. Uh, the dividing line is the sexual revolution uh, and what sh her rulings in the future might anticipate or what people are anticipating about her future rulings. And it's it's pretty sloppy work. I think it's subtle. Um, the Some people justify it in the name of truth, right? We gotta we gotta know the truth about her religious practices, and to be fair, 
there's a bit of tension I found between the Bill of Rights freedom of the press to report and Article 6's requirement that, quote, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification, qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. And so what you have here, uh, in addition to um, overt op-eds, you have uh, an entire, uh, almost an entire industry of straight news reporting um, that is setting up a de facto religion test for Amy Coney Barrett um, as they debate her, um, whether or not she'll be uh, placed um, in the Supreme Court. And of course, we're having this conversation before she, you know, before President Trump uh, officially announces um, his pick. So we, this all could be <laughs> distant history pretty soon if he picks somebody else. But if she's the likely candidate, um, it's really setting up. And, and she's already faced this. Um, this is not not like uh, new. When she was placed uh, in 2017 on the, the lower court, Feinstein, Senator Feinstein, uh, made an expression that on in in the nomination hearing um, that the quote the dogma lives loudly within you and it's challenging um, you know the intensity um, and her particular religious beliefs um, and that ought to concern a lot of Americans uh, regardless of of um, what religion you think of uh, or re what religion that someone someone's religious belief um, entering the public square is going to experience this kind of scrutiny um, in a way that's set apart as set up, set apart as weird um, for everybody. Uh, so that's my concern. I think we need some better we need some better religion reporters. <laughs> all right, Matt Hawkins and I are going to take a very brief break. Um, I think those are all excellent observations. Um, it seems to me at the bottom line is. Uh, the press is okay if you are marginally or uh, or just in name only nominally religious, nominally Jewish, right. nominally. Yeah. Don't go to services. Yeah. Don't to, you know you you sort of you, you appreciate it as a background conversation, but somebody who is yeah. actively and ardently engaged that is a problem uh, in the mind of yeah. uh, of the media. All right, Matt Hawkins and I are going to return uh, in just a moment. We're going to talk about the connection between spirituality and civic minded engagement. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Matt Hawkins. Um, Matt, let's talk about the connection between spirituality and civic-minded engagement. You and I both read um, this, this report that people who are highly spiritual, that's an interesting characterization, um, mm -hmm. but highly spiritual tend to be more civic-minded. I yeah. I have experienced that as as true in my own life, but what do you make yeah. of it? Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. A study done by the Fetzer Institute um, talks can it draws lines between uh, folks professed spirituality and to what extent they participate in civic minded things. Um, and on the one hand, I think you're right. It uh, doesn't. It's not really news. It's just gives us data about what we kind of experience anecdotally, right? Um, uh, people who uh, are more involved in their religion and their spirituality uh, tend to uh, care about civic things. They tend to care about their neighbor and care to uh, actually engage uh, the process. And so what you have is a trend line that says basically the more, the more a person identifies as spiritual, the more likely they are to vote 
uh, speak out on political issues, get involved in politics. Um, some of those uh, actions um, basically include, you know, writing a letter to government official, expressing your views, uh, donating to political campaigns, uh, you know, participate in marches and rallies. Um, you know, what was interesting to me too in this reality, in this, the, the, the story and the headline and, and the study kind of emphasized spirituality. Um, but, uh, Boston professor Nancy Ammerman points out that there's a huge overlap between those who consider themselves spiritual and religious, you know, the kind of the conventional wisdom about being, I'm spiritual, but not religious is that, um, those are two separate things. But this study found that basically 70% of respondents consider themselves both spiritual and religious and only 16% said they were only spiritual and 3% said they were only religious. Um, so that kind of throws a wrench into some of our conventional wisdom uh, and some of the, the trends that uh, where people think they're you know, spiritual but not religious. Um, uh, that, that was pretty interesting to me. Um, and, you know, it's released during the same week we're having this conversation about uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, and, uh, you know, participation <laughs> in religious, mm -hmm. religious, religious groups, uh, tends to make you more civically minded. Guess what? It's normal. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a reason that if you, you know, if you just sort of look at the religious involvement and, and depth of conviction of people in, in positions of elected leadership across the country, mm -hmm. um, there's a reason that they're disproportionately representative of uh, religious groups. I mean, yeah. right? I mean, people are people are like, yeah. well, the, you know, Congress doesn't doesn't represent the 25 percent of America that doesn't believe anything. Well, that's because the 25 percent of America that doesn't believe anything also doesn't believe in us as a people and doesn't go right. and run for office and take responsibility for us. They're just, you know, if you've if you've arrived at the place where you are the most significant thing happening, then in all likelihood, you're not going to set aside, um, you know, the the seven figure income that you might get uh, yep. for the, mm, you know, I don't know, five figure income that you're likely to get if you enter into any sort of um, uh, political engagement, particularly at the at the most local of levels, which is, you know, where it all starts. Yeah. So I think yeah. that, um, yeah, I think that self-sacrifice, I think that the common good, I think those kinds of conversations grow out of a heart that is already, you know, pounding for something other than the, than the, than the self. Yeah. And, and I think yeah. what, what's interesting to me is that kind of the fact that this is news to folks, yeah. that this is a headline, uh, you have to have a kind of a secularized assumptions uh, going to be surprised this, by right? this. because for yeah. the vast majority of, of human history and frankly, the globe now, um, religion isn't really separated um, from public and civic life. Uh, it's only in recent history, very recent history, within the last hundred years or less, where we have kind of separated uh, religion from from public life. Um, and so that, that's a unique element here, too, is that this is makes headlines and it's interesting to people. And it's like, well, we maybe ought not be totally surprised. <laughs> about right this. um and particularly in the christian christian realm i mean you and i talk about this every week um how our faith informs our public 
our public engagement and, and engagement of civic life. And so uh, the, the this kind of cuts against the the trend line of the privatization of religion that's existed for about a, uh, only 100 years out of out of, Amer- of human history. Um, so that those kinds of presuppositions I find are interesting, too, when we look at studies like this that say, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> OK, so I have a, um, a setup question for you. Um, that Uh-oh. don't don't be no don't if you don't know the answer it's it won't surprise me so okay. don't freak out okay <laughs> okay how many how many as of today or you know yesterday when the last time you were paying attention to this um, how many people have died globally from the coronavirus oh globally. do you remember do you remember when we Actually, were tracking this like kind of obsessively I do. I do. So we've now had more than 32 million cases of the coronavirus globally, but global deaths have still not reached that sort of million, that sort of magic million mark where people, you know, million people globally have died. We still have not reached that number, which, you know, I'm not I'm not celebrating the fact that we haven't reached a million. What I'm trying to point out is we've kind of lost track of the global numbers. Yeah. And and would it surprise you? Would it surprise you to learn that every year there is a pandemic that kills more than a million people every single year around the globe? I did not know that. That we don't ever talk about. Fascinating. Tuberculosis. More, a million, 1.5 million people die around the world from TB every year. And we do not That's... seem to care about it nearly as much as we are, I mean, obsessed with yeah. The coronavirus, which I understand it's new and therefore we're paying attention yeah. to it, but it still hasn't killed a million people this year. Yeah. And uh, the tuberculosis and anyway. thing is interesting. Um, yeah. A lot of, you know, so, the, diseases, the diseases that we for which we have uh, inoculations and, and treatments for, I think, you know, we we don't think about as much because there's a there's a treatment plan now that's well, maybe not and because uh, we're not yeah, accessible. It's, because, it's not accessible to a lot of people around the globe. But there you if go. there's, ding, you know, ding, ignoc- ding. if there's. Right. And so yeah. we're, we're kind of looking at these things that, you know, the the newness that's new, you know, coronavirus is new. It's new and, and therefore we not... don't have a way to fight it. But we have sort yeah. of lost track and sight of the fact that there are three things going on in the world. Malaria, yeah. TB and HIV AIDS, um, which still killing massive numbers of people every year. Anyway, um, that's what my next yeah. topic of conversation is with uh, sure. Mark Lagon from the Global Fund. So I thought I'd tee it up with you I'll to see to if... I know. Well, I appreciate it. All right. Hey, that's Matt Hawkins. You can find him at MT Hawk uh, on Twitter. You can also find him at MatthewTHawkins.com and at the Crossing Fades podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks, Carmen. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll be right back. All right. So if I if I were to describe this to you, if I were to say it begins with a mild fever and, you know, general malaise. Painful cough, shortness of breath. It's an infection that prospers in crowds and spreads to people in close proximity to one another. Um, Containing an outbreak of it requires contact tracing as well as isolation, treatment of the sick for weeks, sometimes for months. Um, You and if I told you that this disease uh, is touching every part of the globe, you would likely assume that I was talking about COVID-19, the coronavirus. But I would actually be talking about tuberculosis. It's the biggest infectious disease killer worldwide. It claims 1.5 million lives every year. And as the coronavirus pandemic uh, spread around the world and consumes global health resources and, frankly, our attention, 
um, this adversary of tuberculosis is actually making a comeback. And so we wanted to talk with Mark Lagon from uh, the Global Fight Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. He's their chief policy officer, and he's up next. Let me ask you a question. How did you learn to forgive? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. It's not something most of us think about, but I'd wager that you weren't taught to forgive. You just caught it from your parents. You learned by their actions what it meant to forgive and forget. The sad part is, if they held grudges, you most likely do too. Forgiveness isn't easy. And when you're hurt by someone, especially your children, it's tempting to hold back love. The problem here is that you're teaching your kids two things. First, they're only lovable when they don't mess up. And second, that they'll treat their own kids like that. So break the cycle. Trust God and offer forgiveness. Do you have teenagers under your roof? Find more encouragement and helpful resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. is the chief policy officer at the Global Fight, Friends of the Global Fight Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. You can find links to everything that we're going to discuss today at theglobalfight.org. Mark, welcome back. So good to be with you again, Carmen. So it's great to have you. Um, I I feel fairly confident that um, that everyone listening and pretty much everyone else uh, is surprised to learn or be reminded that um, we constantly face a global killer um, that takes the lives of 1.5 million people around the world every single year, and it's not the coronavirus. That's right. The United States uh, and uh, people of faith have put um, their eyes and hearts on those who have been struck by HIV AIDS around the world. Uh, And uh, in Africa, COVID-19 is actually really complicating um, the ability to help those in need um, from HIV AIDS. They're, they're intimately connected. Yeah, so um, so I'm looking at the Global Fund's recently released 2020 results report. And again, if you guys want to check it out for yourselves, you can do so at theglobalfight.org. The 2020 results report, um, first of all, Mark, tw- 2019 was a remarkable year. Uh, the, global, uh, the Global Fund uh, reached this it's just a milestone, this cumulative 38 million lives saved around the world um, through the efforts of, uh, you know, people who have said, you know what, we're going to apply ourselves to this. We're going to do so collaboratively. We're going to do so consistently. Um, it's genuinely collaborative. It's genuinely global. But there are real signs that COVID-19 is massively disrupting the progress um, against not only the fight against HIV, but TB and malaria. So tell us about that. Yeah, um, studies recently have shown that like 90% of countries surveyed have had disruptions in their health services uh, related to HIV and tuberculosis and malaria. There's a danger of, uh, in Africa, um, the death rates doubling for those things that we, the, the U.S. and uh, most importantly, those uh, citizens and people of faith on the ground have been fighting um, could be 500,000 extra deaths from HIV AIDS, doubling the amount of malaria deaths, maybe a 1.4 million more TB deaths than expected. 
in sub-Saharan Africa. And, and I just think that we have to pause and consider that for a moment. I think that we've, you know, we've started talking about such extraordinary numbers, right? 200,000 deaths COVID-related here in the United States, nearing or, you know, approaching a million deaths globally uh, related to the coronavirus. But we're, we have taken our eye off maybe, I mean, maybe I know you guys haven't, but um, maybe collectively we have taken our eyes off the desperation that people were already in, um, in some places around the world where HIV, malaria, and TB are still, um, I mean, real adversaries, real enemies um, that take the lives of an extraordinary number of people every single year. Talk with us. Maybe let's just focus in on um, the the COVID-19 and, and then pick one. COVID-19 and HIV AIDS or COVID-19 and malaria or COVID-19 and TB. Like, talk with us when we we start taking those things together as a challenge. What are we looking at? Well, I'll take one, malaria. Malaria is uh, devastating to children. The mere um, bite of a mosquito um, can lead to a child dying within 72 hours. Um, I work with uh, a, a number of Christians in Southern Africa who are in, involved in that, Anglicans and, and, and others. Um, and, you know, simple situation, a family needs to get their children under malaria bed nets. You need to get out the latest nets that aren't, um, uh, you don't, there isn't a resistance that's developed um, on the part of the, the bugs to, uh, you know, the, the nets. Uh, how do you do that when there's a lockdown? If a child is supposed to be taken to a clinic within four to eight hours with a fever um, so that they might not die of malaria, what do you do in a lockdown or if you're afraid they might have COVID-19? Um, well, so and how do you one, get there? One. I mean, if you if you rely on, uh, you know, here here in the United States of America, it's hard for us to even imagine what life is like in places in the world where, you know, everybody doesn't have a car. Uh, but they don't even have roads. I mean, it's not even, I mean, some places that yeah. we're talking about right now, um, people walk for hours carrying their sick uh, to to medical centers that are at best regional. And, um, and it's hard for us to imagine then during a lockdown, um, not only uh, is your ability to go to those places um, limited by the government, but your access to transportation is has disappeared. Yeah, I, you know, you have transport stoppage, lockdowns, restrictions of gatherings, going and seeing um, your um, pastors, um, teachers, people of faith, community health workers um, in person um, are harmed. Um, food supplies have been disrupted, um, driving up prices. Those who actually do have medications but need to take them with food um, have either not had the medications or the food. Um, but just imagine, you know, it, it, the, the demographic that, that is most vulnerable to HIV AIDS in Africa is adolescent girls and young women. We made huge strides through the U.S. PEPFAR program started under President Bush, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, and the Global Fund. But if ki- girls can't stay in school, which is the way you keep them from facing sexual violence and you give them the education to um, you know, prevent being exposed to HIV AIDS. 
um, if they are, uh, you know, not able to go visit clinics, um, their uh, vulnerability goes up, and all the progress the United States has devoted its heart and uh, you know its wallets to, um, you know, will will be reversed. So we need to focus on uh, the American people hurting, um, and them being uh, cared for as we face COVID-19. But um, we need to think of the most vulnerable in the world at the same time, and we're capable of doing so, called upon to do so by the Lord. I'm talking with Dr. Mark Lagon from The Global Fight. You can find him at theglobalfight.org. Uh, Mark, you and I need to take a very brief break. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. I wanted to read um, just a couple of sentences um, from uh, from another person speaking on this. She's from the Global Health Fellowship at Chatham House. Um, and, and this is what she says. The coronavirus pandemic is like a black hole consuming global health resources and the concerted efforts of countless medical professionals around the globe. It's threatening progress against other killer diseases such as malaria, HIV and tuberculosis. What makes this pandemic unprecedented is not the virus, but the response to it, which is mostly driven by fear and panic that overestimates and and overreacts. Um, I want to I want to talk about international cooperation. And I want to talk about in particular um, what your thoughts are uh, in terms of how we might need to, at this stage of the game, rethink international institutions, even those as big as like the UN. So I'm going to continue this conversation with Dr. Mark Lagon in just a moment. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Mark Lagon from The Global Fight. You can find uh, links to what we're talking about today at theglobalfight.org. Um, Mark, I want to get to the conversation that you had with um, Dr. Anthony Fauci on the global aspects of COVID-19. But I want you to, I want you to share um, a, a little bit about your thoughts related to you know, how it might be time for us to rethink international institutions um, even even those as big as the UN, it does seem as if we are not working cooperatively in you know in our response to uh, to COVID nineteen, and maybe that's just reflective of the breakdown of our relationships globally. Uh, it's very important to work collaboratively. The world needs the United States as a leader. Um, of course, the UN uh, has its problems. It's celebrating its 75th anniversary right now this month. <laughs> Can't even meet in person because of COVID-19. Um, but we need to look for uh, institutions, new institutions, uh, or the ones that work. Um, you know, I, I work with the Global Fund uh, to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. It's devoted to those three diseases, but it, it is, has helped 113 countries so far that have asked for um, helping strengthen their health systems that have been shaken by COVID-19, allowing treatment, testing, and case finding so that there isn't an even bigger um, mortality spike due to AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria than COVID-19 itself. The, the collaborative work is so essential and focusing on um, we just talked yesterday with the guys from um, Convoy of Hope. And, I, you know, those those organizations and institutions that are able to figure it out on a small scale and then scale it up to function on a large scale 
and to work not only locally but globally. Like the the people that are really good at the logistics and the distribution of help, like they ought to be the ones that we, you know, say, hey, regardless of your worldview, you're doing it right. So let's let's get on board with that and let's um, let's be sure that uh, the most good is being extended to the most people through whatever the most effective methods are. Um, you know, not just because of whatever the name on the sign is. That would be my, you know, my we take to, on it. We need to jump on uh, the cooperative arrangements that, that, that work. Um, yeah. And so ones that pull in uh, businesses for innovation on um, vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics, um, they know how to do um, supply chains. Uh, and those that include faith-based organizations in Africa to reach the people who are most in need uh, on dealing with pandemics, you need faith-based groups um, to reach them. The Global Fund, for instance, funds Catholic Relief Services, World Vision, and many local Christian groups um, in that effort. Um, let, let's build on the on the cooperative arrangements that work. But the U.S. is needed as a leader, and um, actually a little bit of uh, international funding can go a long way if you're smart. Um, it can get bring others into the mix, like business or, or other donors. Um, uh, countries like Germany and, and Canada are standing ready to, to help with the Global Fund's response mechanism um, if the United States um, continues to give a little. Yeah, and, uh, and so we all need to be advocating with our members of Congress uh, to be sure that that happens. Hey, Mark, let's talk about um, the conversation that you guys hosted recently. The hashtag was uh, Friends Health Chat. It's a web dialogue you guys have from time to time. Um, you recently uh, featured Anthony Fauci, uh, and you guys talked about the global aspects of COVID-19. What are some of the things that you learned from him? Uh, you know, everybody's used to seeing uh, Tony Fauci talking about what's going on in the United States, but he focused on what's going on in Africa. He said that, you know, when you have a, a quote, when you have a pandemic or outbreak of the magnitude um, that we're seeing with COVID-19, you start seeing something that's very profound, the interruption of service for those other diseases, including things like drugs for HIV, bed nets for malaria, drugs and care for tuberculosis, uh, a rather substantial interruption of what prior to COVID-19 was working uh, uh, in, a, in a pretty good way. Um, so that's the, you know, we need to recognize the way other people will die of things other than COVID-19 because of it um, in fragile places. I appreciated um, what he said about our moral responsibility. Um, I thought that particular portion of the conversation was really significant. I do, I do think that um, when we are afraid, we tend to, um, we we think that if we protect ourselves from other people, if we close our uh, you know our eyes and then our hearts to what's happening to others, you know, we'll be able to better protect ourselves. But that's um, that's just not the morally responsible thing to do. Dr. Fauci said in, in, in the conversation um, that you guys had uh, in your uh, friend's health chat, we really do need to hang on uh, to something that's distinctly part of our society and our culture, and I hope we don't lose it, though sometimes it seems like it's drifting away. And it is that moral responsibility that we have to take a global view when it comes to diseases. Um, and you guys are doing that day in and day out um, at the Global Fight and through the Global Fund. And so, you know, we want to encourage people to, um, you know, if they're interested and they want to follow up, if you want to read more about what we've talked about today, you want to hear the full 
uh, the full conversation with Dr. Fauci. You can do all of that at the Global Fight. Dot O-R-G. Mark, thank you as always for joining us. It's um, it's a great privilege to know you and to uh, to support you in what you're doing. Uh, may everybody out there be uh, safe and, and mindful, uh, mindful of others, uh, the least of these, as the Lord calls us to be. Amen. Amen. That's Dr. Mark Lagan. You can find him at theglobalfight.org. We'll be right back. plans. Weekend plans. What are they? It's Friday, so we should be thinking about the weekend. Uh, I'm going to a homecoming, high school homecoming football game tonight in order that I can watch the halftime show. I don't know what that says about me, but there you go. It's uh, There's someone who is dancing. I'm going to use that uh, term really broadly uh, in the halftime show uh, during a high school football game that I cannot possibly miss. Maybe you've got some weekend projects. Uh, Paul's going to take a drive up north and look at the leaves. Yeah, he's got to do that. That's that time here in Minnesota. The okay. leaves are changing. It's so now it's just that time of year that everyone in the south is just now painfully jealous. <laughs> painfully jealous. Pictures so are available what, online. So, Don't worry. Yes, we want you to get out of the car. We want you to collect some colored leaves, put them in Ziploc bags, and ship them south. Uh, we'll I mean, you know, that. I'm just saying, but don't not not with any of those um, nasty elm beetles. Like, leave those guys out. That's not. We don't want any of those down here. Okay. 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 Um, projects. Maybe. Uh, maybe it is a weekend. You're going to go check on mom. Um, here are three things in case you don't have plans yet. <clears throat> here are three quick things for you to check out tomorrow. Franklin Graham is going to be leading the prayer march in Washington D.C. Focus on the family is going to be hosting the Sea Life in uh, New York City's Times Square. So you can check out what Franklin Graham is doing at prayermarch2020.com. You can check out uh, Focus on the Family's Sea Life at focusonthefamily.com. And then this is also um, Repentance Sunday. And um, so on September the 27th, there are going to be thousands of churches across the country. And you can join in with this, whether you're at home or maybe you are gathering with a community of other believers. Um, This Sunday, thousands of churches across the country are going to dedicate time for prayers of repentance and revival. And so I want to encourage you to consider doing that. And you can find that at repentance-sunday.squarespace.com. So Repentance Sunday is what you would just Google. But it's this Sunday, September the 27th. So those are some opportunities this weekend to engage. Uh, Again, prayermarch2020.com, focusonthefamily.com, and repentance-sunday at squarespace.com. Dot com. Um, all opportunities for you to engage this weekend with other Christians across the country um, seeking uh, seeking revival. Let's be before the Lord. In addition to all of our fall projects and fall fun, uh, let's be a people of prayer. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.